Hello, my name is Peter Newhan. My name is Ben Huber. And we're with the GPPR podcast team. Today we interview Geopolitics Fellow Stephen Law, who is the former Chief of Staff for Mitch McConnell, and now the President and Chief Executive Officer of American Crossroads, one of the most uh, largest super PACs that funds uh, Republican candidates in the country. Uh, we discussed and how uncertainty impacted uh, Stephen's early career as Chief of Staff for Mitch McConnell, uh, and how it's currently affecting both uh, bipartisanship in Congress and voter turnout in general. Uh, we hope that you enjoy the podcast. Take a listen. All right, so thank you for joining us today. Um, you began your career uh, as Mitch McConnell's legislative uh, assistant, um, but you quickly um, ascended the ranks to become manager of his first re-election campaign in 1990, uh, and then you served as his chief of staff uh, for six years. Um, when did you decide that politics was your calling, um, and, and how did you lever- leverage uncertainty to advance your career? Well, I, uh, I I first came to Washington uh, many years ago, and um, uh, my my first job was with a uh, senator from New York. Uh, his name was Al D'Amato, and I was just an intern intern in that office, uh, yeah. filing papers, and uh, and it was really almost uh, a whim. I, I thought I, I didn't want to go right into a, a big uh, New York City law firm. I just graduated from law school. Mm-hmm. I wanted to try something different, and I figured I'd give it a year and uh, have some fun, and then uh, go uh, grow up and. Uh, entered the law firm world and really after about a year I was hooked. I, I knew I was never going back and um, I, I didn't know if I had a talent for politics but it was really interesting to me. I, I like the personalities, yeah. I like the issues um, and uh, you, you mentioned uncertainty. I, I think being able to live with uncertainty is a, a critical ingredient that makes you good at this business. You, you don't know everything that's going to happen. Uh, there is necessarily a fair amount of improvisation that goes on. You have to be able to deal with unforeseen events. And, and, and the truth of the matter is that even if you're the President of the United States, as our current President is finding out, that there's so much that is simply beyond your control. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way you get graded, typically, is uh, on two things. One, obviously you have the plans and the agenda that you want to carry out. But the second thing that sometimes is the bigger grade is how you respond to unforeseen circumstances that completely change uh, what you're going to be working on that day or even that entire uh, tenure of your being in office or as a staffer. Can you give us an example of, of a big circumstance that you know forced you to change direction or you know reassess things? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> in um, in the the, the uh, 2000 election cycle, mm-hmm. uh, I was running the National Republican Senatorial Committee. And uh, we were very focused on Senate races, obviously. And uh, what what overshadowed all of that was uh, the presidential election. And we quickly started to realize uh, two things. One was uh, that the the presidential dynamic was really going to control everything because most of the states where we had Senate races uh, were also presidential states. And so the the, the dynamic up at the top was going to affect everything uh, underneath. And the second thing we realized was that there were not going to be any coattails at all, that uh, uh, we could sort of see the, the likelihood that, that George W. Bush was going to win that election, but it was very clear to me uh, that uh, it wasn't going to have any down ticket impact, that it was kind of an every man or every woman for herself right. uh, environment, and uh, we had to deal with that. And, and so uh, our response to that was to do as much as we could to localize these races, to pull it away from whatever was going on at the top of the ticket and uh, allow ourselves to help elect candidates regardless of how uh, our presidential nominee was going to do. Right. 
Yeah, um, so I'm just going to bring it bring it to the bring it to the present day here a little bit. Um, you mentioned you mentioned the president currently trying to deal with uncertainty, and um, I've I've noticed that like a lot of people seem to be outraged that Republicans in Congress are working with the president, despite the fact that he's a Republican president. So I, I don't really understand that, but I do feel like there's. Uh, the, the sort of comedy that you're used to maybe or, or want to have in Congress has been lacking, especially in this uh, latest Congress. There's, this, there's no bipartisanship right now. Mm-hmm. That, um, the tax reform was passed with you know no no Democratic amendments or, or, uh, or votes in either the House or Senate. And um, I sort of wanted to bring this and ask if you think bipartisanship is important or do you think that at this point uh, political differences uh, bring you know, maybe to some things you can talk about in your discussion section that maybe political differences are so wide right now that it makes more sense for parties to operate kind of like parliamentary majorities than than traditionally how um, Congress has worked. How do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, it certainly has changed from the time when I first came to Washington mm-hmm. D.C., where you had uh, Southern Democrats who were uh, more conservative than a lot of Republicans. Uh, you had uh, some Republicans from the Northeast. Uh, we have very few now, but but who were more. Uh, moderate and uh, and you also had uh, politicians, particularly in Congress, who who had a gravitas of their own, so that they could do what they felt they needed to do. They were they had a lot of latitude to cut deals, and they could tell the interest groups on their respective sides that hey, that's the way it's going to be, and uh, I'm not afraid of you. And and uh, we've had a number of things happen. I think that that changed that dynamic. Um, one, the, the parties themselves have become more polarized, uh, more pushed to their ideological edge. Uh, that's happened to Republicans. It's also happened uh, to Democrats. Um, uh, second, I think uh, gerrymandering uh, in the House has created a, a really balkanized uh, uh, caucus on both sides. You know, on each side, you, 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 the the, uh, the concern that, that a member has is not so much whether they face a difficult general election, but they're worried about being primary from the, the far side of their own party. So again, everyone gets pushed uh, to their respective sides. Um, and, and there uh, aren't the kinds of issues as, as often that, that tend to push people to the middle. You see it every once in a while. I mean, people forget that we passed a landmark uh, Veterans Administration reform bill uh, early last year. Uh, and uh, I think when we're tackling things like human trafficking and uh, opioid abuse, it tends to bring people together. But uh, you know, if you look back to the Bush tax cuts uh, of the early part of his term, uh, those were passed with uh, over a dozen Democratic votes. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, we're just not we're not doing that sort of thing. I mean, part and part of it is that uh, you know that president, uh, President George W. Bush, had had learned to deal with a uh, a, a Democrat-run state legislature when he was governor, so he had some experience in that. Neither. President Obama nor this president have had any experience uh, of doing that sort of thing, and, and, and it shows. Right. right. I think there's a follow up. So, to drilling down to like the difference between the parties, I feel so. We talked to, as we mentioned, as Peter mentioned, we talked to Nadim El Shami um, a couple weeks back, and something he said was that, uh, and he was envious of, is that Republicans have a message discipline that Democrats never will. This sort of a, th- a thing that he uh, imparted to us. Um, and he, he thought it stemmed from an ideological purity that kind of the, the right has that, that, that the left kind of is incapable of having. And I wonder what you thought, <laughs> what you, what you make it, make it that if you think that's right. Yeah. It, it's so funny because, um, uh, I often hear that. And then I also often hear Republicans say, you know, Democrats have a message discipline, uh, where they are all on message all at the same time. And Republicans will never have that. So we, <laughs> we all say that about each, each other in some way. We always assume that the other team uh, is playing uh, more smartly on the field than we could ever possibly do. Uh, I, I don't 
I don't perceive a great difference either in terms of uh, the capability of message discipline or a, a, a kind of a, a clarity of, of ideology that, that makes that possible. I mean, I think both sides kind of have some amount of both. Um, uh, so I don't, uh, it's funny, Nadim and I have talked about this because I said, no, no, you guys are the guys who are always on message and we're always kind of floundering around. So I think you always sort of really envy the other team and think that they're doing better. But I don't, I don't see that much of a difference really between the two parties. Um, just to go off of that, <clears throat> with Paul Ryan's recent uh, declaration of retirement, mm-hmm. um, you know, where do you see the, the messaging of the Republican Party going in the next, in the next year, especially into the midterms? Um, is there, I mean, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty there with the amount of retirements across the board. Yeah. No, I think on the Republican side, uh, and specifically looking at the house, yeah. uh, there's, I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty there and, and, uh, Speaker Ryan's decision to leave has uh, greatly increased that. Um, uh, among other things, it will, it instantly sets off a, uh, a race for his successor. And, um, you know, there are at least two. Uh, likely contenders. We'll see if there's another, uh, but but just simply that leadership fight alone will test the fault lines inside the Republican caucus, and there and there are some significant ones between right. the, the the far right Freedom Caucus. There still is a, a a group of moderates, and then and then sort of kind of other rank and file, more establishment Republicans, and and that is going to set off some internal discomfort and difficulty, and uh, and whoever comes out of that, I think, will. Uh, be a new face and a new voice. Um, and I think Ryan, uh, Speaker Ryan, was kind of the man for the hour in that uh, he was able to speak to all the different factions within a, a pretty fractious House caucus and to do it in a, in a very genial uh, way, kind of a policy wonk kind of guy, but he was, he was an agreeable voice. And right at this point, we don't know what the next voice will be and whether they'll be able to speak with his eloquence. Do you think that the uh, the Freedom Caucus is more marginalized now, is weaker with the passage of the with the budget deal, or, the, or rather the, the spending increases? Well, the Freedom Caucus, uh, ha- its its unique strength is that it does command a significant chunk of votes that are enough to prevent a majority, yeah. uh, at least on the Republican side, uh, from coalescing on any given issue. So that's that's their strength. Uh, to the extent they've they've lost some clout, I think it's more because uh, of the fact that, that that President Trump has a dominant and really overwhelming voice when communicating to the Republican base, right. uh, and we saw that in in prior uh, face-offs between the Freedom Caucus and the President that the, the President had a louder megaphone and a more effective uh, method of communicating to the base, and so I think they've they've been somewhat. Uh, reduced in in terms of being the, the dominant voice that, that sort of declares what the policy is for right. conservative re- Republicans, but I, th- I think at this moment uh, their their strength will reassert itself in some way when when we're talking about how does the caucus produce a new speaker. So you're now the president and chief executive of uh, officer of American Crossroads, um, which is among the most powerful forces in national politics today. Um, spending a lot of money uh, to help elect candidates, um, you know, since its founding by Karl Rove in, in 2010. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what you think about um, the importance of, of transparency and campaign financing, and whether voters um, should have a right to know where you know million dollars are coming from. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for that. I I, uh, I think we're. I sort of think of us as an amplification system. We're not the sound source, yeah. uh, and uh, I always. Try to make the point that if if a if a candidate doesn't have a good campaign and a good message, 
uh, we can spend all the money in the world and we're not going <laughs> to help them. You can, turn, you can turn up the music real loud, it doesn't make it any better. Right. Uh, and, uh, and we've had to learn that the hard way. I mean, I think we, we initially thought that because we had access to a lot of resources that we could really turn the tide. And we, we can help, we can add weight, uh, but, uh, but I, th I think this game still belongs to the candidates and the voters, and, I, I, and people often miss that. And, uh, but I, I, I certainly have learned, learned that the hard way. Um, with respect to, to uh, transparency and campaign finance, you have two different kinds of groups. Well, you've got all sorts of different kinds of groups <laughs> involved in the political process, and, and I manage two different kinds, one of which is a, a political action organization that is right. wholly, wholly focused on politics and campaigns, and that group discloses uh, everything right down to what they pay me, uh, and uh, which is fine. Um, and not enough, no, I just <laughs> uh, but uh, and, But then the, the, there's another platform, which is an issue advocacy organization, and uh, it's analogous to groups like the Sierra Club, uh, the NAACP, and other groups yeah. like that. And historically, uh, there's been a policy that if you're engaging primarily on talking about issues, and we do some politics uh, through our uh, issue group, I wouldn't uh, want to lead anybody astray on that, but, but if you're primarily an issue-based group, that uh, there's a respect for the confidentiality of donors. And this goes back to a famous case uh, that went all the way to the Supreme Court involving the NAACP, and the Supreme Court upheld the view that there should be you know, some reservoir of privacy for donations because sometimes, in fact, oftentimes I've seen politicians want access to this information not because they're interested in transparency but because they're interested in retribution they're interested in uh, trying to prevent this stuff from happening um, at one point when senator chuck schumer was introducing a, a bill to require more disclosure of this kind of activity uh, he said you know you cannot underestimate the intimidation factor hmm. and when politicians talk about that you know they're not interested in good government and transparency they're interested in finding out who they're "Quote unquote enemies are so that they can make their lives more difficult." And so I, I, I think there's a reasonable bound, uh, boundary here where, uh, in the main, transparency is is good and important. Um, but uh, since we don't contribute money directly to candidates, there's not a, a corruption issue here because we're not we're not giving money to directly help them. We're spending money on the side to talk about issues and, and to some extent to talk about politics. And the Supreme Court has said, "Hey, when you're doing that, you can you can keep your." Yeah. Hmm. Um, let's uh, bring bring in the participation, the voters side of this a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so we've seen like twice twice in this millennium, twenty sixteen and two thousand, we had presidents elected, you know, with electoral majority, electoral college majority, but not a uh, actual uh, a popular majority. Right. That's the, those are the first, I think two thousand was the first time since the eighteen hundreds that it happened, right? Um, and we've seen a raft of new uh, voter ID laws that are uh, convoluted and, and suppressive probably to turnout. And in um, 2013, we saw the Supreme Court invalidate key parts of the Voting Rights Act, right? So do you think this trend is a problem, this, this, uh, this generally suppressive trend to, uh, to voter turnout? And if, if it is a problem, what, what can we do about it? Well, I mean, voter turnout uh, um, is, I don't think voter turnout is impacted as much by by, for example, an ID requirement as it is by whether people are engaged and motivated and um, inclined to, to vote. Um, for example, in the 2004, 2000, sorry, 2008 and 2012 elections, you had just record high turnout among African-American populations. And 
that was because they they were really excited to support someone who was the first African American president, and and, uh, and they they agreed with what he stood for, and they and he he was a you know a compelling leader from from their perspective, and I, so I think they felt galvanized, felt like there was a really unique moment uh, to participate. Similarly, younger voters. I mean, again, we lost these elections, so I I guess I shouldn't be celebrating, but I you know the the, the larger issue is that people were excited about this president uh, President Obama, and they they turned out and. and record numbers to su support them. Um, uh, I, I haven't looked deeply at the actual impact of things like uh, ID requirements on voting, whether that in itself has had an actual diminishing impact on turnout. If it did, I think that's something we, we'd want to look at. But, but you know, in my experience, and you know, most of it is trying to get voters excited enough to vote. And then the second part, we often forget about this. I mean, you know, simple voter turnout is not an absolute good. What, what you'd like, hopefully, is people turning out and vote who know what they're voting about, you know, and, and I think so it's not just getting them to, to show up on a bleary eyed in the morning and, and fill out a ballot. It's hopefully uh, they, they cast a vote because they've thought about it and they, they, they know the candidates, they know their positions and things like that. Ideally, that would be the case. Um, uh, and then, you know, vote, vote however they want to. But uh, so, so I think it's I think it's a more complex issue. I'd be I'd be interested if there were research that said that that these additional requirements are kind of making people less likely to vote. But but as, as I've looked at voting turnout patterns in previous elections, it's just much more. If I'm excited, I'm going to turn out and vote. Do I need an ID requirement? Well, here's my ID. I'm going to go go ahead and vote because I, I I want to support this candidate or I want to support this cause. And um, and for us, that's our our challenge is to try to get people to feel like it matters enough to get up early in the morning and do that. Absolutely. Uh, to leave this on an uplifting note, I want to ask uh, what your advice, uh, what, what advice do you have for students in public policy who want to get involved in public service? Um, is there a way for us to remedy some of the problems and pressures that, that you think might or, or might be threatening our democracy? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, my, my whole uh, seminar uh, series has been focused on the problems in democracy and uh, and we've tried to focus on what's, what's the individual responsibility or opportunity uh, to, to try to change things. And I, I think... The most important, the thing that worries me most is uh, that, that politics can become just as much of a spectator sport as professional football. And, you know, we just turn on the TV and we get a little stimulation. And then if we happen to vote, uh, good, or we don't. And, and I think uh, one of the things that's been inspiring to me is so many students here who, who obviously care. They're very informed. They, they were, they're so much better informed than I was when I was in college about politics, uh, a much more textured, uh, sophisticated understanding. And so I, I would just say, you know, you get involved, uh, participate in a campaign, even if you're just, you know, licking envelopes or going door to door, it's, it, you'll learn so much and you'll feel like you actually have an investment. I mean, the one thing about democracy is, is that it's, it's a cell phone system. And if we sort of check out and expect the pros to go do it, then, um, We'll get the, dem the democracy we deserve, but I think we can make it better by really getting involved. And I, again, I, th I think you know every, a lot of people are you know uh, particularly those on the on the left and, and often a lot of younger people just think, oh, it's the worst time in politics, President Trump, blah blah blah. It's actually <laughs> the best time. Everybody's interested. Everybody's fired up. You know, some people are angry, some people are happy. It doesn't matter. I mean, I, I think for the first time in a while, I think people have felt like it matters, and and it does matter. And I think if you pursue that passion you'll make the country a better place. Well, Stephen Law, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Well, um, thank you. It's great to be on your podcast.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website at www.gppreview.com, our Twitter at GP Policy Review, or our Facebook, GPP Review. Thank you.